0: Spinning in circles and talking to myself Spinning in circles and talking to myself
1: Welcome to a new spin on autism Answers with host and international speaker and performer, Lynette Louise Besides working on her doctorate in psychophysiology, Lynette has raised 8 children, 6 adopted And 4 of them falling somewhere on the autism spectrum Laugh with her, cry with her, as she talks to both experts and parents and takes you through the often confusing, sometimes frustrating, sometimes overwhelming, but always fascinating world of autism. Hello and welcome. This is a new spin on Autism Answers. I'm Lynette Louise, your story teacher host, otherwise known as the Brain Broad. Today, it's really early in the morning in California. By the time you hear this, it'll be a totally different time span and weather report, but we are in a heat wave. So uh, we got the air conditioning on, which is unusual for me, and my son is circling around and around going, when will it cool off? When will it cool off? Um, I'm excited to have our guest today. But before we get to that, I want to remind you to stay to the very end of the show where we'll do stories from the road. And I'm going to be your okay, 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 great guest giveaway, because I haven't done that in like two or three shows, and I'm getting really lazy about putting two guests on one show. I figure, you know, one's enough, and today, one is more than enough. I'm very excited about today's guest. I have to give you a little backstory here. When I first started doing neurofeedback, it was... Life-changing, life-changing in such an enormous way for me, for my son, for my other son, for my other son. Like I just kept going down the line in the family going, oh my gosh, it's working again and it's working again. And that's why I jumped off of all the training I was doing and jumped onto the neurofeedback train and, and started doing shows about neurofeedback and talks about neurofeedback and comedy about neurofeedback. It was so amazing. And when I first got into the field, there was literally one study, just one, one small little study relating neurofeedback to autism. So the very beginning point of neurofeedback and autism, getting some efficacy as as a therapy that can be useful in autism spectrum, at that very beginning point, there was a doctor who... We're so lucky because she's going to be on today's show. Are you excited or what? I'm very excited. Okay. So as she pointed out, everybody calls her Dr. Betty because her last name is very hard to say. And in fact, I asked her how to say it. And now I forget because the spelling and the pronunciation don't match. So rather than ruin it, I'm going to let her re-say it when I introduce her. But just to tell you, so we met one time at a conference. And uh, I don't even know if she remembers this, but we met at a conference way back when, and I was like, oh, that's the doctor that started making this efficacious for autism. And so I went over and I talked to her a little bit and I believe it might have been husband, brother, something, I'll ask, we'll ask her. She was with somebody, and I was at that time still rather blunt myself. We all know I've been eventually diagnosed with Asperger, so you know we have our bluntness. And I remember saying, um, so you're not looking in my eyes. Why is that to the person who was with her? So I'm wondering if she remembers that, and we're going to start with that question. So, Dr. Betty, thank you for being in the show, and please pronounce your last name.
0: Well, my last name is Jaroszewicz, so I don't know if I pronounce it correctly. It's a Polish name. My husband pronounces it differently. Uh, there aren't many of us, so we just decided that when I worked, I would be Dr. Betty, and otherwise, I'm just his wife. So... <laughs> well, that sounds <laughs> awesome. Do you remember that time at the conference? I must well, you know, I have I have to admit I don't remember a whole lot. I went through a very a dark period in the early 90s, and this must have been before that. And uh, I lost my memory uh, in the early 90s, and I sort of had to start my life over again. And so I don't remember much of anything. Wow, uh, what my happened? Kids, well, my brain said, as you know how brains are, uh, if you stress me too much, I'll fix you. If you don't take care of me, I'll, I just have, will have to do what I have to do. So my brain shut down. I, at that time, was in charge of uh, product development at NASDAQ, and I was the first woman vice president uh, in the operational area at NASDAQ, only woman vice president in New York. And there was a lot of stress I had been on Wall Street for 18 years, and there had been a lot of ups and downs during that stressful period of Mike Milton, Drexel Burnham, and falling out of all those different companies. So one day uh, in May or April of 91, I went to work, and I could not remember one system or anybody's name, and I couldn't make phone calls. I couldn't do anything. I sort of locked myself in the office and tried to find help and wondered why my brain was doing that because my brain at home was okay. Like I knew who my husband was, I knew where I lived, I drove to work, I could do all that. But when it came time to thinking of any really sophisticated stuff, forget about it. So um, it took me a good year to, to in seeing lots of different doctors and whatever, to find out that I was uh, disabled and deserved to be on disability for a while, so um, I went on disability and I started regrouping and finding a new education. And I wanted to know why my brain did what it did. And uh, now I can see why it did. <laughs> I've, uh, I've suffered from PTSD, and I am in the autism spectrum. But all those things were unknown to me and to the world, which it still is often unknown. I see so many patients who the doctors don't know. They don't see the PTSD. They don't see the autism spectrum. They don't see. And... Uh, and then if they do see, they don't know what to do with it, they just throw them some drugs or something like that and uh, wash their hands of it. In the meantime, while I had been um, growing up as an autistic child, I was under the table most of the time, standing in the back of the room, not speaking, I didn't speak at all till I was six, and did not uh, speak clearly. Okay, so okay,
1: okay, well. okay, 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 right. okay. So just a minute. This is amazing. Okay, so let's just underline this a little bit. First of all, you must have been more Asperger's-like in that certainly you must have had some affinity for numbers or something to have attained that kind of role in the world. Um, secondly, you did this pilot study and you still didn't know you were autistic at that time. So... With our background, I, had this, I have all the same stories from my childhood. With our background, okay, it makes sense that they didn't know because they weren't looking. But the minute that I met you guys, I, I could see it and I remember speaking out. So why do you think it is it took a total shutdown for you to finally find out that, as you termed it before, your family disease was
0: autism? Well, it took even longer than that. Even going to for my Ph.D. and studying the brain, I still did not know that this really applied to me. I wanted to find out why my mother died of alcoholism. I wanted to know why my brother banged into walls and was unable to work. I, I wanted to know why my own children had issues. I wanted to know... What was going on in my family, and so we had called it the family disease. We knew there was an issue. I mean, it was very clear that there was there was an issue, but nobody knew what it was, and so it just became called the family disease. And I, by just by chance, I uh, found out that neurofeedback was good for drug and alcohol. So in my studies of that, I went to get trained. In neural feedback, and while there, my son called me and said, "We have a diagnosis for the family disease and it took the diagnosis of my now 19 year old grandson uh, to use the words autism, and they had never even come up in my family 's vocabulary and it still didn't come up until I started my research. And then I noticed, wow, this applies to me too. Wow. <laughs> wow, it's not just him, it's not just them, it's not just all these people around me, it's me too. And that's when I finally came to the conclusion that all this trouble that I had gone through about the Speaking problems, like I don't speak very well after 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, I have to be alone pretty much at night. I After 6 o'clock, I pretty much go into my library and, and close the door. Um, but that's what I have to do. But uh, I was able to raise kids and work very hard. And so that's what brought I was good with numbers. And, they, and I was very lucky that I went to a school that allowed me to teach myself. I went to a prep school, and uh, they didn't know what to do with me because of, I learned so differently. And so they allowed me to stand at the back of the room and observe, take notes, go home, figure it out, and come back with my homework done Differently than everybody else, but I always got the right answer. So they figured, forget how she does it; doesn't matter. She gets the right answer. That's good enough for us. And oh, I'm, I'm so,
1: so jealous. I, <laughs> yeah. In math, I used to give them the right answer, and they'd want me to show my work, and then I'd get the wrong answer. I'm like, you have to choose. <laughs> right. or <laughs> you let right.
0: me give it. You... <laughs> and that goes with reading too is that they want us to read slow phonetically. I can't read phonetically. My brain can't go that slow. So I read in sentence and paragraph chunks. And so there's no way that you can force me to to read phonetically. And when my children could read before they went to school, And then they forced them to try to do phonetic reading later. They just all rebelled and said, we're not doing, we're not going to read at all, you know? Mm -hmm. And yet reading is so, it was so important to me because since I didn't want to ask any questions because nobody understood my questions, um, I, I just needed to read, look, observe, and see the pattern of how they wanted the answer. And then I got to it. And I figured... A way to do it. And so I sort of reinvented everything as we went along. And like I said, it was really lucky I went there from fourth through high school. So it was a miracle that I got a good ed- basic education and then did well on the, um, on the SATs and was accepted to every university I applied to. So everything said I was set to be an engineer. And my parents forced me to go to civil engineering, which I really hated. But they said they're German, and they said the test said you've got to be a civil engineer. You will be a civil engineer. Well, you so know, you brought
1: off. up some important um, some important concepts that I deal with all the time because I argue against a lot of what's done with the, our kids on the spectrum. Um, I love that you said nobody understood your questions. i certainly experienced that myself. I'd ask a question and, and it would just be some twisted version of something else. I always saw something different than everyone else saw. So the question that I brought up was always unrelated to what they were trying to teach. And then, of course, their answers didn't match my question either. And it was just like a huge vat of confusion. I love that you brought that up because I think it's something that is often tried to be pushed out of children that are on the spectrum. They're like, no, 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 you have to see this the way we're teaching it so that we can answer your question instead of trying to find the jewels and the ways in which they're perceiving. So you had a great school. You were very, very blessed. I was. Right. So do you think that um, the fact that you had these peculiarities as you were growing up and were able to find your way to learn, Teaching yourself essentially, um, do you think first of all, do you think that we should do it that way? Let the kids teach themselves and just guide them, and secondly, do you think that those special um, idiosyncrasies of yours made you better with autistic people once you started working with them?
0: Yes, to both. I think that what I, I spend a lot of time with my patients and with uh, ancillary things like education. It's so important that they go to the right school and usually the right school is one where they are seen as different but special. And look for their particular talent and it's fine if we don't understand it. Let them fly. Like I had a five-year-old who was interested in toilets and air conditioner and wasn't interested in anything else and didn't want to talk about anything else. So I told the parents, go to Home Depot, Lowe's, buy every book on toilets and air conditioner and let the case go. And the kid knew everything about everything. The first thing he'd do when he went to visit anybody else's house was look at their toilets and air conditioners. Well, we need people who know that, you know? Right. and. Right. And it made this child so happy to be good at this, and he can translate this into other learning as he goes. And that's what I did, is that even though they forced me to spend almost five years in civil engineering, all of which I really hated, it's the funniest thing is that, well, as they say, God has a sense of humor, that the engineering and the electricity and uh, all those other things that I learned at an engineering school did help me uh, now. And so it was in- interesting in systems work. And so here, even though that's 50 years, over 50 years ago, then the electricity is still electricity, you know, and uh, a vault is still a vault.
1: You know, yes. Yes, so, and you know so, it's so. It's funny, uh, Dr. Betty, because I had have a computer science degree, and I'm terrible in all of that. But it's definitely helped me to look at the brain as if the brain is a flow chart, as if it, I'm looking at the binary code, at uh, the excitatory and inhibitory, uh-huh. as opposed to the ones and zeros. So in the end, that training can really cross over. I love cross-discipline learning. How did you end up? Is is it because of that training? You think that you ended up doing the first pilot study?
0: Well, no. What happened is, is that I, I, my first marriage, I was married to a person in the medical field. I met him at Cornell. He was initially a doctor of veterinary medicine. And when he graduated, of course, I chose somebody really brilliant but really odd. And um, he had started college at 16 and had his first doctorate at 22. And He decided to go practice with large animals. That was large animals, cows and horses. Well, he got licensed in California and a number of other states. But we eventually got to California, and I worked with him. Um, I was a dutiful wife and did everything he told me. So he told me, "I need you." To do all my bookkeeping, I need you to answer the phone. I need you to clean and sterilize all my equipment. I need you to make up my drugs. Uh, we will buy in bulk and reinvent and do stuff like that. So I did that. We eventually had seven veterinary hospitals and I managed them. And then he decided, okay, I'm going back to medical school. So, I said, okay, now what am I supposed to do? He said, you'll become a CPA. I said, I don't know anything about that. He said, you'll figure it out. And I did, and I passed the national <laughs> CPA exam without ever taking a, an accounting course. I, I love autism. I <laughs> yeah, right. But we don't know how to do things, but we figure it out. But, you know, we know things from the bigger picture. And we see things... Like, that's why I think all the kids need to rewind all the time because they look, you know, when they look at videos and pictures and yeah, stuff, yeah. They, they need to see everything. And so we, as being in the spectrum, we need to see the world of view. So every time I would go into something, I would plan it so that I could fix the world on the way, you know, that uh, this that I was going to see the whole picture and do it from there. So uh, after I became a CPA, my husband moved us again, and we moved to Michigan. And uh, he worked for a drug company, and he needed somebody to figure out how many horses he would need in time to prepare a certain amount of uh, biologic. And so I did that. And I did that while doing a masters in accounting, but because I figured, how how can I go and say I'm an accountant if I never took a course? So they were (laughs) nice enough to me to say, you know, okay, you passed all the exams. It's ridiculous for you to take the course. Take any courses you want. So I took really interesting courses in like what they call logistics today. At that time they called it operations research. And at Still, at that time, computers were the size of a barn, right. and um, and card, printed cards and stuff like that. But I, um, I, I like to, I like everything to cross add, and that you know everything to be organized because otherwise I don't see it properly. Okay. I like to see it in chunks, you know, with right. numbers and pictures. Right. And so that's how we think is I think that for me, and we, I believe we all think differently. I mean, why not? You know, each one of us has billions and billions of, of neurons. Right. Each one's or, or method of uh, use is going to be different depending upon our genetics and our activity and what we eat and course, uh, how we course, go to school. But how did all that lead to you ended up doing the pilot study? Well, so I when I went... Uh, and needed to go back to school to get my brain back, uh, I decided, okay, I will become a drug and alcohol counselor because my mother had just died of alcoholism. So while there, I figured, well, if I do this, I might as well get my Ph.D. So I got my Ph.D. in health services, focusing in on the brain, and I thought at the time that I could do a lot with my computer background, but while being trained, And um, as I mentioned, my son said, we now know the family disease. I asked, I was being trained by the OSMIRF, and I asked them, do you think that this will work with autism? They said, we don't know. So instead of going home and opening up, we had bought a building to open a drug and alcohol clinic. Instead, I went home and opened a research center, and I immediately began work on a pilot study working with autism. And I thought, because I had just finished my Ph.D., of course, I knew how to do a good pilot study. I had, you know, everything was fresh Mm -hmm. in my brain. So that's how I started and uh, Uh, began work with myself and then uh, worked with, I had basically 24 um, kids that I started with. Wow, you know, that's
1: amazing. I I mean, that you began something so instrumental now. You've changed the field forever. Let me do the mid-break. You are listening to a new spin on Autism Answers. I'm Lynette Louise, your story teacher host, otherwise known as The Brain Broad. Um, Stay to the very end of the show,
0: where we will have
1: stories from the road
0: and I will be yours. Okay, okay, great guest giveaway. I have a great giveaway to
1: give away. Okay, um, we are speaking with Dr. Betty and Dr. Betty's last name is going to be ruined by you but I'm going to get, take a shot at it. Betty just, just awips. I don't know, I'm going to let her do well, it again.
0: It's sort of like Manashevich, it's Jarashevich.
1: Ah, Jarashevich, there you go. Um, and she was the person to be the entire efficacy pathway for neurofeedback being um, used with children with autism. So this is a a really wonderful show. I'm really blessed to have her, and we're having such a good time. Coming out of the break, I I was writing little questions or comments down as you were talking, and I was thinking about um, the whole idea of reading in chunks and in entire paragraphs and how perhaps it's related to the way that you can look at something and go, well, this needs to be done. So in a chunk, you know, I need to have this Therefore I need a study or therefore I need, uh, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a CPA now, I'll do this or I'm gonna be, you know, whatever it is, we do it in a chunk as opposed to getting bogged down by the details and then just jump in and very often rewrite the middle part. Does that sound familiar to you?
0: Oh, indeed it does. As when I was reading up on what you have been doing, I have, you know, marveled at the amount of work you have done and now I've only been working on neural feedback since 1999 I mean that I was over 60 years old at the time so you know I came into this very late uh, I feel so jealous that I don't have my youth to be able to put the power that I had we have a lot of energy uh, uh, people with this kind of brain because we have so much Power in our brain and it extends to our body and so it's, it's amazing what we can get done just give us the job to do and we'll find the whole picture and address the major issues and go from there now if somebody asks us a silly question buried somewhere in the work we may not be able to answer it because I miss probably 20% of what I read. If I feel it's important, I will sometimes go back. But sometimes I think 80% is, is not a bad percentage. Well, to tell you the, the truth, the, neuro-
1: the neurotypical person who reads word by word by word, they don't, they don't remember it either, so it's
0: okay. No, they don't remember it, and they don't see the whole picture. Right. Whereas we, like some of, some of the children, they can look at computer printouts and pick out where the errors lie just by noticing the, that there's something different in the uh, printing. And it's, it's amazing what these, some of these kids can do. Uh, but each one is so different. Like I had one child, I don't know if you've read the book, Born on a Blue Day. I haven't read that one. Some kids, some people can do math with color. And I had this boy who had uh, Tourette's along with some autism, and he did his math in color, and the color told him the answer. So when I did the neurotherapy, initially the color went away, and he said, you have to give me my color back because otherwise I can't do my math. So I figured out a way how I could give him his color back and he could still be feeling better. But right. it's funny how, I mean, I don't have a clue about how that works, you know? But yeah. I can't be expected to know everything about the brain. It's you know, a little <laughs> bit here and a little bit there, that's something, you know? But it, it astounds me. At some of the patients that I see that come to me, I had a gentleman who was cut literally from ear to ear where he had uh, seizures so bad that they cut him open from ear to ear and stuck a probe down to try to stop the, uh, the seizing. And it didn't work. So he came to me and he said, is there anything you can do for me? I said, well, what would you... Like to, what would be a, a sign of a good result? I do that with everybody. What is it that you want to be fixed and so we can really measure it well? And he said, I would really like to have, make love with my wife. And so we figured that, you know, it would take two, significantly fewer seizures than 500 a day, which he was having at the time, where he had to be in a uh, wheelchair because he kept falling down. So, He had, like, only two or three sessions, and then one day he didn't show up, and uh, he let me know that uh, he was down to five seizures a day, and that was, he could manage that. So he was a satisfied customer. (laughs) Can you imagine that he had gone through this horrendous operation, stem to stern, and yet it didn't do anything? Yeah, this is
1: a, this is a big problem out there is that we, for some reason, despite your early work and, and all the work that we've done in the field, um, it, you just don't go to your doctor and have them say, before we try all that stuff, how about you try neurofeedback. I think it should be the first line of defense because it can actually change the way the brain's operating. And then if it doesn't, you still have all those other options. Um, instead, it's the one that the person doing the research online discovers on their own, or occasionally it's the doctor's idea. But it's a real... Um, it's a real unfortunate circumstance that we're always trying to fight. There's a, a, we're almost out of time, and there's a couple of things that I want to uh, hit on. Well, really just two. One is, so we began, I want to take us back to where we began the show, because I think it's a great example of what can happen to us when we're asked to be and do and operate in a way that is too stressful. And I really want to leave people with that understanding. So, you were working, um, you were functioning really well, obviously, to have gotten such a high position as vice president, and yet you ended up with this shutting down of the brain. Um, do you believe that was strictly stress related, like as far as pushed by the company, pushed by the requirements, or the way? Talk to me about that a little bit, because I really want parents to not unduly stress the brains of their children.
0: Well, I don't know what this means, but I suffer from PTSD. I was a very abused child. And um, I still am suffering from flashbacks from the time I was two and three. So uh, I didn't have any the courage to confront uh, the family about it. And after my mother died in 1990, it's no surprise that she died in November of '90, and um, my brain shut down in early '91. So I think it had to do more with the um, PTSD. And the thing is, is that we are—we have very sensitive brains. We have very powerful, but very sensitive, and are the children who are in who don't get what they need say that they are in foster homes or um, don't get the attention from the parents at at a very early age, the loving, the, the hugging. If they don't get that and then worse yet, have see and hear and get involved with a lot of other negative stuff, we're going to be sicker. Than others. Now we get sicker physically too. Our immune systems don't work awfully well. And I have suffered for the last four years with a tremendous bout with infections in the sinus and had to finally find somebody who knew something enough about it to clear that up. So it's, we just, we're sensitive. And we're sensitive physically and sensitive sensitive mentally. So we do have, we, we can suffer, um, emotional, uh, and behavioral issues more easily because of our sensitivities. So that's right. why, you know, when our children, like I have a 19 year old grandson who is uh, significantly autistic and you can't, even though some of his behaviors are five years, uh, In the five-year-old category, you can't teach, you can't treat him as a five-year-old. He's a 19-year-old and he's a teenager and he wants to rebel just like a teenager. Doesn't matter that he doesn't have all the words handy, but you know, he takes it very much as, uh, an affront if you treat him like a five-year-old. So we have to remember that, uh, in the autism family that these Children are very special, very, very smart, but very sensitive. And we have to look at their environment a lot because they overreact to toxins of all sorts. And that's why I think that the autism levels are going up is that we live in a more and more toxic soup. Right. Right. Well, I
1: mean it's kind of like the perfect storm of genetics yeah. upon genetics coming together, toxin upon toxin coming together, you know, and, and then stress yeah. upon stress. The yeah. the lack of freedom we now give the kids, the you know, much of what you did. Much of what you accomplished had to do with the freedom to stand back, be yourself, and learn your way, and that's being stripped of everybody. So um, it's mm-hmm. really that perfect storm. We are out of time. Before we say goodbye, and this has been so fun, I hope you come back another time, can, is, would you like to give um, a way for people to contact you or things they can read about you? Sure. Or do, yes, okay, so please share that.
0: Sure, um, I'm available at my uh, email site, which is b j a r u s at comcast.net, and I happily answer emails. And then if uh, if we need to talk, we can talk. Talking is harder for me than emailing, so I prefer the email. But I do. It's because I'm semi-retired, uh, being in my 80th year, um, now I have the joy of choosing what to do. (laughs)
1: Yes, (laughs) very much so. So when you think of all the stuff we talked about, um, and thank you very much, by the way, for doing that first study because it's really sort of led the way for the rest of us. But when you think about all that we've talked about, what's one last word of advice that you want to share with mostly caregivers and parents?
0: Well, I I want parents to see the family as a system that everybody is impacted and everybody is loved, and let's include everybody in this. This is a wonderful opportunity to have um, togetherness on a super-duper scale, and not to worry about it, not to worry what other people say. Uh, use your gut and relax and have fun. These kids can be tremendous fun. Uh, just even their words, I write things down because they're so wonderful. Each child is so wonderful and I get so much out of each uh child that they they need to see this relationship as a gift and not as a problem and to trust that uh good things will happen right all they have to do is wait beautiful well
1: said, and thank you so much, Doctor Betty, for being part of the show. It's an honor and a privilege to have interviewed you. Well, thank
0: you so much. I admire your work tremendously. So okay. keep keep on, keep on. I will, I will.
1: All right, that was Doctor Betty. And if you want to reach her, if you want to ask her questions, as she said, she now has the the advantage of her senior years and is able to be very fussy about how you contact her. So go ahead and contact her via email. She's a very interesting and knowledgeable woman. B-J-A-R-U-S at com. Wonderful. I, I'm, I'm just so excited to have brought her for you. Um, so let's talk about, okay, 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 the great guest giveaway, because I have the best ideas Oh, I'm just so excited to do this for whoever it is. There's only going to be one person, and I'm trusting that you don't hurt me by putting it out in the world where other people can get it for free. But I am just finishing redoing... Well revisiting a book that I wrote many, 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 many years ago. I found it. It was all yellow paged. I read it onto a tape so that someone else could type it. Now I'm going through it and, um, and I'm sort of putting it in order, and it really is an instrumental book in that, at that time, I was in the same place as Dr. Betty was in her childhood, I was just weird, there were no words for it, there was no explanation of it, and as a result, we lived in a time when parents were supposed to hit you, and they were supposed to do things, and they got carried away because you're weird, and, and maybe you're weird because they got carried away, and the confusion of that The whole confusion and an understanding of being hurt by physical um, attacks and also being helped. It's the strangest thing. So um, I, I actually understand it, and I bring that to you. So whoever sends me an email will get this unprinted book, via an email. I'll send them an attachment. Please do never share it with anyone else because I do want to bring it to print. Um, But you will be the first person to ever have it, and you'll have the original copy, and that would be so cool. And you can also give me feedback on it, so you would be instrumental in that way. And I think it's an important thing to bring up. You know, when Dr. Betty was talking about uh, how there was a boy she worked with and he missed his colors because now he couldn't do math. Well, that whole color thing, I had a color thing with music. And uh, I played the piano by color and I got in trouble and so I lost my color and then I couldn't play piano. It was all very silly. And... Um, I want to point out that that is a type of brain damage. As a matter of fact, it's in the parietal lobe and mostly, but it could also be an auditory tract there or a mixture of information. There's a lot of questions about that whole synesthesia kind of thing. But it brings to mind another guest we had on ages back, Jason Paget, who was beaten up. His brain was injured in that area and he ended up a math genius. And he sees all of the algorithms and everything. Like he'll be walking along and look at a tree and he'll, you know, I'm like jealous because math is hard for me. Excuse me. So
0: um,
1: understand that we are broken in the traditional sense, but broken can lead to great gifts. And there is a lot of confusion out there in the world between those who want to honor and adore and embrace autism and those who want to fix it. And some of that is the confusion between functional ability and intellectual ability. So when Dr. Betty was talking about her 19-year-old teenage grandson, he's functionally very young. So he functions very differently than his intellect and his historical understanding of the world based on years spent and rubber to the road, life lived. And this is a great difficulty for most therapists and therapies. They just want to start where you're functioning and ignore your intellectual possibilities and your your maturity. Or they want to honor the intellectual possibilities and the maturity and ignore the functioning. And I'm sorry, but it's a dance between the two because a person wants to live capable in the world. You know, when my son couldn't wipe his bottom because he didn't have the physical ability, he didn't like it. He wanted to smell good. And if I said, yes, but he he can do quantum physics, I shouldn't help him with that. That would be ridiculous because now he can. He's not stuck in a diaper because I didn't do it. He can. So we want to look at the function when we're saying things like, oh, you know, they graduated college. If they graduate college but they can't clean their room or take a shower, it's not really that advantageous to their ability to move forward in the world. So it's a dance that you want to do. You want to honor the person within while helping the person without. And let me say that again because I think that's a writer-downer. Honor the person within while helping and teaching the person without. As in, and by without, I mean on the outside. So you really want to help blend those two, okay? And that doesn't mean you have to show your work when you're doing your math. If you can get the right answer, move on. There's a lot for them to deal with, so, you know, yeah. Um, allergies are a really common problem in autism, allergies, eczema, asthma. Um, so a lot of time people think they're. we're just talking about gluten and all that stuff. But no, it's just plain old allergies. So keep an eye on that. That's probably why Dr. Betty had the sinus issue. All right. So that whole forcing people to be normal equals abuse thing. It is time for... Stories from the road. I have a mom that I worked with for many years, and um, her daughter was just adorable. I just adored this child, so beautiful. And had no language. She's one of the harder kids to work with as far as gaining language. She was very impacted in her physical abilities, as I was just discussing. So moving uh, moving her body properly, getting her mouth to reproduce words upon command, all of that was very, very challenging for her. Learning how to eat and chew, I mean, she was just one of the more in, impacted kids. And we did a lot, a lot, a lot of play work with her and a little bit of neurofeedback work. Um, Her family was challenged by the concept of neurofeedback. Some people are intimidated by the idea of working with the brain. And I find that interesting because, trust me, you are working with the brain. You can't avoid it. Whether you're working with the brain by teaching your child through yes and no or whether you're doing it with an EEG, you are working with their brain. Whether you're doing it by ignoring their needs or not, you are working with the brain. So go ahead and be proactive about it and actually work with the brain and take a look and see what's going on in there. That's my advice. But at any rate, this family was challenged by the concept of doing that and wanted to do most of it through play. And that kind of made sense with who they were and their their backgrounds and what they'd learned. So... Um, which I can't describe, or you'll know who this person is if you know them. So I'm just going to leave it like that. And, uh, you know, this this girl had some of the typical fascinations. She was fascinated by balls. She was, you know, she loved to hold a ball, throw a ball. She loved to be rocked. She loved to jump up and down. Um, she had a, a, a perseverative, a affection for, you know, rocking her genitals against different pieces of furniture. So there was a lot of change that had to happen for her to be assimilated into regular school. But she did all of that, and she did it well. She got some words. She got some uh, ability to embrace different foods. She was doing really well. And then you could see the intellect within. You could see her answer well some questions via typing or facilitation. And uh, you could see her struggling on the outside to follow the gym instructions. So she was, it was always that balance that I was just talking about. And it was really marvelous. Um, there was a time where that particular family really got uh, stressed by trying to help teach to the child within and find and discover the person who could, who could graduate college because it was uh, just a family that honored that and that respected that and saw that as uh, success. And as a result of that attention to what should be, what shouldn't be happened... I'm not going to go into details because um, of privacy issues, and in case they're listening to the show and afraid of being uh, recognized. But I do want to tell you that that pressure, that pressure, isn't just put on us by the other people. So often I hear parents <coughs> complaining that everyone stares at them, or they're at the, you know, they're at the grocery store, they're at the school, the IEP, the And everyone's mad at them, and the neighbors don't like them, and all of this. And I went through all of that, too. And if I had PTSD ever, it was from that. But that was my own perception. When I changed my perception, everything changed. So here's the gift in this story. The pressure of conforming isn't just for the child. It's for the child's family. So the pressure of conforming according to society's ideas, it doesn't really exist. That pressure is something you're giving yourself by believing it exists. The truth is, just (laughs) when you were a teenager, you thought everyone was thinking about you and then you grew up and found that they weren't and they didn't care because they were thinking about themselves. Well, now I'm going to tell you something else. Now that you're an adult and you're a parent and you're raising your child and you're having all those struggles, society doesn't really care about you. (laughs) They're thinking about themselves. Just Take care of your own family. Don't worry about all that. You made it up, right? You made it up and you heard it places, but it's not real. It's only real the minute you embrace that belief. So don't embrace it. Just decide, wow, my child is who my child is. They go to college or they don't. They succeed in whatever way they wish. And if they want to be a plumber of toilets, then that is fantastic. I I work with another child who loves to wiggle string all the time, and I'm always trying to convince that family, look, there are people who compete in the Olympics with wiggling string. Let's wiggle some ribbon. (laughs) right? Let's turn it into a skill. The minute that the thing they love becomes a skill they have, and they read about it, and they write about it, and they do uh, computations about it, you're teaching. So go where they are, be their friend, and don't make up that the world is pressuring you. Mostly, the world is taking their cues from you, and you're inventing the pressure. So drop the pressure, and let's not hurt our children, but let's go ahead and be tough with them. Because if there's anything I've heard from everyone from Temple Grand to to Donna Williams, and even in Betty's case, there is something to be said for what used to be. The absence of a label, the absence of all of the Molly coddling. The ones that got ahead and made it very advantageous, having a brain that thought so differently, those people actually were treated toughly. So go ahead, ask a lot of your child, but do it with love. I'm Lynette Louise, your story teacher host, otherwise known as The Brain Broad. And thank you for being here, because without you, I'd just be talking to myself. Oh, and one more thing. That story I told you about Jason Padgett, that's an anomaly. Don't go hitting your kid on the head hoping that they're going to become a math genius. It's not going to work. to myself spinning in circles and I'm talking to
0: myself i can't hear you